Okay, it's been, because of fall break, nearly two weeks since, yeah, nearly two weeks since I did an episode on civil procedure. And so I think a brief, very brief review is well in order of federal question jurisdiction. Note, subject matter jurisdiction is an overarching umbrella that encompasses both federal question jurisdiction which is established under Section 1331 of Title 28 of the USC, and diversity jurisdiction, which is under 28 USC 1332. Federal question jurisdiction just means that things need to relate to federal law, not a state law, in order to hear a claim. And this is outlined in Motley with the well-pleaded complaint rule. And we talked about Motley, where... The issue was a state claim, and so this typically isn't going to fall underneath section uh, section 1331. And even though there were federal issues at stake, so it was a state claim because there was a contract claim, but there were federal issues, and those federal issues were established in the defense. And so the well-pleaded complaint rule just says and that the claim needs to be related to federal. And so it needs to be a federal claim, not a state claim. And here it is all dependent on state claims. One thing to note with the well-pleaded complaint rule is that the defendant can make a counterclaim, but if the plaintiff has already done a state claim, well, then the counterclaim, if it's related to federal law, that cannot be done in a federal court. It still needs to stay in the state court, and that's because, well, they lost the race to uh, to documenting, uh, to filing a complaint. And that's really what the well-pleaded complaint rule is. We have here an exception to the well-pleaded complaint rule where a person can bring a state claim under section 1331 to a federal court. And that means if there's no diversity, if it can't meet 1332, where there's no diversity, or if it's not in excess of $75,000 in the claim, well then under this one single exception, then the state claim can make it through 1331 to be heard in a federal court. And this is going to be through Grable and Sons. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to talk about Grable, where this was allowed to go through 1331, and then I'm going to talk about two exceptions, Merrill Dow and Gunn. Uh, I won't focus as much on Merrill Dow as I do on Gunn. But Grable and Sons, what happened here is that the plaintiff in this case, he had some property and he did not pay some taxes on it. And so the IRS, when he was away, uh, came in and auctioned off the property. Five years later, he came back and to his surprise, because he wasn't told that they were auctioning off the property, to his surprise, there was no property there. And so he sues, saying that I pretty much want my property back. 
the IRS did not give me proper notice. And therefore, they weren't allowed to do what they did. So, property law is a state issue. But in order for his claim to succeed, it relied on notice, which is a due process thing, which is the federal issue. And note this was also against the IRS. So, what the court said here, to keep it brief, the court said that Grable could, under these circumstances, sue in a federal court. It doesn't have to be a state court. And the reason for that is because the law itself would have to change for, well, it, his case for him to win relied solely on a federal issue. And because his case to win relied on this federal issue, he was able to make his claim in a federal court. This is different from Gunn. Very similar set of circumstances in the sense of he needs to rely on federal law to win. But there's other important factors at play that separates Gunn from Grable to for the Supreme Court to say we're not going to allow this to work. So in Gunn, same kind of thing, but he was unsuccessful. What happened in Gunn is the plaintiff had an issue with a patent, and so he hired some lawyers, and the patent didn't work out. He lost that case, and the lawyer should have made a claim and that it should have made an argument, and they didn't make that argument. And so Gunn goes ahead and he sues the lawyers for legal malpractice. Well, legal malpractice is a state claim. It's going to be done in a state court unless if Gunn was able to prove the necessary elements to say this should be done in a federal court. So Gunn wants this to be in a federal court, and the reason for that is because patent law is exclusively federal. Intellectual property goes through federal courts only. Gunn is unsuccessful in his argument because even though his case, his legal malpractice case, relies on the patent issue being resolved, and there are other effects that he doesn't meet. So let's just do a quick comparison of the four elements that are necessary for Gunn to meet his case. First is that, is his case case necessary raised? And that means, does winning depend on federal law? And here that is yes. Federal law determines whether or not he wins his legal malpractice case. Second, is it actually disputed? Well, it's actually disputed because there's issues here. And I mean, it's obviously something that needs to be discussed. There's contrast of opinions of whether or not this meets that element. Well, whether or not this meets patent law. Third, and most significantly, this is what separates it from Grable, is whether or not it was substantial. And so we're going to ask, what are the consequences of him having a positive outcome? Here, he will win his case. He will win his legal malpractice case. 
The issue with that is his patent would not change. He wouldn't get his patent back. And patent law as a whole wouldn't change. What was different in Grable was that the entire IRS was involved. IRS policies would be affected. IRS rules would change. Not only would Grable win his case, but the IRS would have to substantively change in order to accommodate it. And so because there's such a substantial difference, Grable counted, whereas here in Gunn it didn't meet it. And fourth, the court needs to determine if it, there if there's a balance. And what that means is, does winning affect the balance between federal and state governments? And if so, if it does affect that balance, it's not met. Here, it's not met because, well, there's no substantial influence on federal law, which means that it would only affect state law. And here, we don't want to be affecting state law. All this to sum it up, to say federal courts are concerned about the impact that claims have on federal law. And those are going to be the only instances when the courts, the federal courts are going to let a state claim into a federal jurisdiction. I didn't get into... Merrill Dow, but ultimately the biggest takeaway from that is that the defendants wanted to take this from a state issue to a federal court. They were not allowed, and because the plaintiff's claim was related to the right to sue for injuries, and it wasn't related to their right to sue for improperly labeling the product that was at issue here because the labeling the issue was the federal claim issue and it was the federal law didn't give them a right to sue for that and so the defendant is only liable for the to the fda for those properly labeling things but to the plaintiff they were only liable for the injuries and that wraps up the exceptions into a federal question jurisdiction and we did introduce diversity but we're going to focus more on that next week thank you for listening to this episode of the law schoolers before i let you go there are four things i want to say the first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website i would invite you to go and join law schoolers pro and you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is, if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.